Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. one of the longest uh, mirror campaigns that we've ever had. So the mirror campaigned on various things over the years. Um, we were the ones that campaigned to get lifeboats on uh, ships after the Titanic. That's how long we've been at it. We also uh, campaigned uh, to, to bring an end to hanging when that was a very unpopular idea. Um, and then we've had more, you know, we've had an awful lot of success in recent years on um, changing the law on organ donation and other work that we've done around the fur trade. Um, but this is one of our longest running. Since 1983, uh, we've been fighting for justice for those people, uh, for those service people who um, experienced in the nuclear uh, tests back in the 1950s and beyond. And 22,000 servicemen were involved in those tests and have, uh, as a result had higher rates of cancer and their families have, have taken, seen the toll of that over many, many years. Um, and so we do this for those people, in memory of those people, some of whom have now passed away and we do that for their families who remain and we're very honoured that some of those families are, are here today and it feels sometimes it feels that we're making a bit of progress on this campaign doesn't it Susie and then sometimes it ebbs away from us again and we also feel that perhaps um, in the past when Labour have been in a position of power perhaps we didn't hold them to account as much as we should have done to make sure that finally there was some recognition for those people who who truly deserve it so we're saying now today that if Labour does get power again, which we very much hope they do in, in the near future, but we will absolutely be holding um, feet to the fire in, this, in the future and we will be absolutely demanding justice for these people that have been denied it for so very, very long. And now I'm going to hand over to our very own Susie Boniface, who, as I'm sure many of you know, has led the way in this campaign, not for the full 40 years, <laughs> but for, for, for I very... I was only born <laughs> recently. <laughs> for very many of them. So thank you very much, everyone, for coming along. Thank you, Alison. Um, yes, uh, so first off, what we're going to do before we start, really, we're talking today. This is not a, a talking shop. Like so many fringe events, people sit in a room and talk about something that's awful and needs to change, and everyone leaves the room and they've just said stuff and that's all that's happened. We need today to produce concrete change. And we're asking today for the next Labour manifesto to have some solid promises in it for the nuclear test veterans. Um, and so as a result of our Look Me in the Eye campaign last year, Andy Burnham, along with Steve Rotherham, met some nuclear veterans and heard their stories in person. So, Andy, what, how, did, how did your determination to do something change after that? Shall I? Yeah, it, take yeah, it away. You have, the, give, you have the floor. Give me, take, get the crook out if I'm speaking too long, but Susie, <laughs> thanks a lot. Can I just start by thanking the Mirror? I think the way you've stood by uh, the veterans has been amazing, to be honest. It really is. As you did the Hillsborough families, you're standing by, by the veterans. It's, it's just fantastic. Because uh, I wanted to say these thank yous first, Susie, because it's important that I don't look like I'm kind of coming in here. You've been brilliant, Susie, particularly. I want to thank Rebecca, who's absolutely led the charge in, in Parliament and has you know, really lifted the issue up uh, several levels. Thanks, Rebecca. But obviously, it's all about the veterans and their, and their families. And this is an issue which shames the nation. Let's just call it right. You know, it's, it's appalling it, the way people have been treated, people who were overseas serving our country and sent out into danger without any PPE, any consent, any prior knowledge of what, what was being done. It's, it's disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. And the thing I wanted to say is I'll try and kind of keep it to the point. You know, we talk, don't we, in this country about British fair play, that this is a country that sort of does things the right way. You would think, wouldn't you, if somebody in this country was harmed, or thousands of people were harmed by state negligence, that at some point there'd be an acknowledgement of that, an apology made, the truth told, and, and reparation made. Well, if you go out of this conference centre into this city and ask this city whether that happens, whether or not there is an acknowledgement where negligence kills people and harms people, well, they will give you your answer. That The answer is no. Um, and obviously that is the, the Hillsborough... Uh, story. It's too easy 
in this country to, to cover up. And it's too easy for the authorities in the aftermath of uh, a disaster or uh, an episode of negligence or harm to put out a false narrative and then stick behind that false narrative uh, for, for years, decades, actually, um, in the case of some of the things that we've seen. And that's why we're campaigning for a Hillsborough law now, which I'll come back to at the end. At the moment, people have got no chance, actually, in fighting unaccountable bureaucracy. The odds are completely stacked, stacked against them. We, obviously, in the end, won a new Hillsborough inquest. It was the process of working with the families that opened my eyes to so much. And I kind of could see that it wasn't just Hillsborough. There were just so many injustices of, of a similar nature that needed to, be, needed to be corrected. And what we've started to do following that is obviously fight back, fight back hard against the establishment who has left people in the wilderness for all these years. So I started to link Hillsborough with Grenfell, uh, and they've really helped each other, which has been great to see. In, in our turn, the Bloody Sunday families help the Hillsborough families in advance. And it's when you connect these campaigns that you start to really make some progress. The Shrewsbury 24 campaign was something that achieved the overturning of the convictions there on the back of some of what we learned uh, through Hillsborough. And there was a big breakthrough in the summer, infected blood, which I think is the biggest parallel to the issue that we're here to discuss, where thousands of people had their lives, well, taken, or certainly severely damaged by state negligence. And this is the point I'm coming to that has been an eye-opener for me. As Health Secretary, I was told that nobody was knowingly given unsafe blood, that there was no negligence. And as I kind of began to look at it, working with uh, Diana Johnson and other campaigners, it became clear to me that the line I'd been given wasn't true, that there was knowledge in the Department of Health of the risks of giving people imported factor eight from the United States, uh, blood that was taken from death row in some cases, where people were paid for donations. They knew of those risks, uh, they, they did it anyway. But they had me as Secretary of State still saying that there was no, no, no one knew of any risks. So when I gave evidence to the infected blood inquiry in the summer, I said that I believe I was misled by the department. And I believe there's a case for corporate manslaughter against the Department of Health. But the reason I'm making that point now is because I think the same is potentially true of the Ministry of Defence, because I think the same, the same applies here. People knew of the risks. They knew what they were sending uh, largely service men uh, into. They knew what they were doing. And they did that without, as I say, taking steps to, to protect people from the harm, but worse, They've withheld the information from people, their medical records over the years, so that people have been unable to understand what happened to them, but also to protect their family. Now, John, you remember, we were at that event with Rebecca in Manchester, weren't we, in, earlier in the year, in January. And I, there was a, yourself, you were up there, but there was about, I think there was a line of about seven or eight veterans, and Rebecca, you and I were in the audience, and do you remember that moment where I think Susie asked them, you know, how many people have had cancer and I think of the seven people six hands went up and how many people have lost a child and I don't remember I, I, I all, but one. All, all but one, all but one hand hands went up, went yeah. up. The, the health harm has been massive but also is passing down the generations because families have not been told what they need to know to be able to protect people so I don't make that point lightly about a case for corporate manslaughter because this harm didn't just finish in the, in the, with, the vet, with the veterans in terms of those who came back and those we sadly lost. It has carried on through, through their family. This is, I would argue, the greatest injustice of them all. It's hard to put them in categories, isn't it? But think about this. People serving our country, signing up to do the right thing, to go out there and, and promote and defend British interests overseas, kind of put into a situation where their health was taken from them, their life was taken from them, but also the life of their kids and their grandkids was taken from them. It's an unbelievable state of affairs. So I'll just finish by saying this is a camp, this is, you know, we've, we've moved forward, Hillsborough. We've moved forward 
Shrewsbury. We move forward contaminated blood. This is the campaign that we now need to move forward and we all need to do it together because the injustice here is, it's off the scale, to be honest with you. And you know, Susie, you've got my, my full backing uh, and Rebecca, as you continue to take this forward, it's absolutely brilliant that the Shadow Defence Secretary has just walked into the, the room as well. That is a fantastic uh, statement. Uh, and it is true that we didn't do enough uh, when we were in government. Uh, but obviously, this shows now that perhaps you know, we, we can make a new commitment to do the right thing uh, by the veterans. But I'm going to kind of just finish as well and say, as well as supporting this campaign, you can see this pattern repeating, can't you, through all of the different issues that I've mentioned. It is too easy to cover up. But what chance do bereaved families have when they finally get to the courtroom, if they do get an inquest or if there is a criminal trial? What they often find is they see the, the authorities and the, the public bodies kind of paying taxpayers' money to hire the best QCs in the land, whereas they often have nothing to, to call on. So there isn't a level playing field. And that is when those false narratives get set and they stick there and they never get shifted. And this is my experience with all of the justice campaigns that I've worked on. And while we can help them individually, as we must, and it's far more than a medal, by the way, that are needed here, it's truth, it's justice, it's reparation for the nuclear test veterans and their families. Let's be absolutely plain uh, about that. But it's more than that. We have to change the way this country works. We have to level up the scales of justice so that people who've had serious harm done to them through no fault of their own, through state negligence, do not have to wait decades, decades to get recognition and somebody even to hear their voice. We've got to have a situation where public servants are, are made to tell the truth at the first time of asking because the fact of doing that means that you don't re-traumatise people, already traumatised by the original wrongdoing, who then are left trying to fight to be heard and that all the re-traumatising effect that that creates. We need a legal parity for bereaved families so that they've got the funds to fight for, for justice. We need a public advocate, as Maria Eagle has argued, because in the case of the veterans, a public advocate would have been able to move this campaign forward much sooner than it's been able to do. All of these things are in that Hillsborough law. And I would say to you, so good of you to be here tonight. Please support the nuclear test veterans fully. Give, give them all of your support and get the word out. But at the same time, please throw your weight behind the call for a Hillsborough law now. It was great to see Steve Reid uh, put his, his uh, stamp on it at the weekend. This is what the next Labour government will, will need to do. To, to properly change the way this country works, so that it works in the interests of ordinary people, and it doesn't work in the interests of the, the establishment and the elite, who I'm afraid find it all too easy to manipulate things in their own interests. It's that serious, it's, it's that important. It's about changing the way Britain works so it works properly and fairly for ordinary people. Please support this campaign. We want justice, we want truth, we want full reparation for the nuclear test veterans, but we also need a Hillsborough law now so that we don't see the same injustices taking place in this century as we saw in the last. Thanks very much. Thank you, Andy. I know you've got to get off something else, but I've got one question I need to ask you, which is fairly simple. When you were Health Secretary, did your officials ever tell you there was a cohort of 155,000 individuals in this country who had 10 times the normal rate of birth defects? No, no, of, of course not. And um, as I say, and they also gave me an inaccurate line about contaminated blood. And I think there are just massive issues here for the British state to face up to, but particularly the Ministry of Defence. They, they really cannot anymore turn away from this issue. They cannot deny people their medical records. This is a department that's always got the national security card to play, isn't it? Always got an extra sort of way of a barrier, an extra barrier to put in place of people. But I'm sorry, it's not justified in this, in this case. Uh, and the truth is, um, Susie, I, I don't know, I was never a minister in the, in the Ministry of Defence, but I do know from Home Office experience that, they, that people there didn't get told the truth about Hillsborough. I, I'm certain uh, that I didn't get told the truth about contaminated blood. And I also, I'm going to make a pretty big guess, 
that no Ministry of Defence minister has been told the truth about what happened to our nuclear test uh, veterans. And Labour should go into government with its eyes open next time, fully open to the way government departments try and manipulate things in their own interest. We shouldn't have it. We'll be a better government if we don't allow it. It shouldn't have taken me to have to go to Anfield 20 years on to even listen to this city that was crying injustice. How many more people are crying injustice in this country mm. and they never get heard because government departments close things down, pull down the shutters, and they develop a, a narrative that they stick behind that works for them but works for nobody else. That, that's why what Labour is committing to with the Hillsborough Law now, and obviously with John being here today, I think this is absolutely time for us to sort of say, you know, no more of, of the cover-ups, no more of the kind of pushing away of people who's through no fault of their own, and in this case, we're actually serving our country, uh, just just have everything taken away from them and get no answers at all, no more. It's got to, we've got to call time on that. Thank you very much, Andy. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, and we're going to come uh, next to John, uh, but very quickly first, Rebecca, can you outline our five main asks that the campaign is, is asking for Labour to do? Well, so the Look Me in the Eye campaign has five key asks, and the first steps are obviously securing a medal and a moment of national apology, recognition and acknowledgement. I'm hopeful that if we keep the pressure on the new Prime Minister, this can and will be delivered for this year's anniversary, but there needs to be much more than that. On financial support, we need to consider compensation and war pension reform as there's currently a burden on nuclear testing veterans to prove that they were irradiated, which is just a mockery. On education, very few people actually know much about the nuclear testing programme, so we need to look at education and making this part of our national curriculum. And crucially, and very importantly, we need further research into the health impacts of the British tests on veterans who undertook different roles at the trials and their descendants, and this needs a full-blown public inquiry, potentially covering the health impacts on both veterans and descendants, and and the records of any medical or scientific testing that was conducted on personnel during the programmes. Thank you, Becky. Thank you very much. So we'd, we'd like all the unicorns and we'd like them all covered in jam, please, because this, this needs to be done properly and it needs to be done now. It's 70 years on October the 3rd and just, just over a week's time, not even that, um, for this, it's the first bomb test, so that time is very much of the essence. Now, um, John Healy, the Shadow Defence Secretary, met uh, some test veterans last year along with Keir Starmer um, and spent a lot of time actually in his office privately as well beforehand. Um, now, John, from your perspective, Having met the veterans and, having, and their, their families and heard their stories, how determined is the Labour leadership to get this finally resolved? Thank you. Um, Steve, John, um, we're all three were with Becky and I and Susie when Keir Starmer became the first ever party leader to meet with the nuclear test campaigners last year. And the simple answer, Susie, is what Keir Starmer said to us and said to you then. Your campaign is our campaign. And I must be doing probably about a dozen events at Labour Party conference this week. Um, and with no disrespect to the other events and the other panels, this is the these are the people alongside whom I feel most proud to be speaking. And I just really want to say, if I may, to John and to Alan and to Steve, um, you speak so powerfully for the veterans, the test veterans and their families. And when we went to meet Keir together, the case you put was so compelling, it was so powerful, that he gave you that reaction because the case is so strong. And although Alison has gone now, Susie, say to you and to the Daily Mirror, there are a lot of newspapers that claim to be campaigning titles, but mostly this is about editors trying to put a bit of pressure on one or two individual ministers and then claim some... You, with this campaign, are taking on the whole British establishment. And... Finally, with Becky Long-Bailey, 
if I can say to you, the test veterans and the families um, and the lab rats, you've got the strongest, most effective champion you've ever had in Parliament. She was the one who managed to get Boris Johnson to do what he never does, which is keep a promise. And that promise... That promise... That promise was to sit down with the veterans and the test campaigners and look them in the eye. And you did that in June. And our job now is to try and make his successor follow through with the commitments that Boris Johnson, when he was Prime Minister, gave. Now, my job's simple, to be quite honest, the Shadow Defence Secretary, Labour Shadow Defence Secretary. When next week we've got the 70th anniversary of the first British atomic tests, and we are still the only country, the, atomic, the only atomic test country, with no recognition and no compensation reward scheme for those veterans who were put at risk, suffered damage, and whose relatives have suffered loss and damage as a result, then that shames us. That shames us as a country, and we have to fix it. So my job is to support your campaigning while we've still got Tories in government to try and get them to fix this injustice. And then after the election, when we get a Labour government, if they've not done it, and they won't, it's down to us to do it. You put a very strong case, and the case is a great deal stronger, especially with the health information and studies and evidence that's come through in the last few years. There is no good reason, there is no good moral reason, there is no good military reason for withholding the recognition and the compensation that other countries have had. And as the Shadow Defence Secretary, I'm also struck not just by the case that you make for the suffering and consequences, but for the fact that you underline quite rightly, you were serving the country, you were proud, John, to be doing what you did, and also proud of the technology that you and your colleagues, more than 20,000 test vets, UK test vets, helped develop as part of trying to keep the country safe. So that's my first job. The second job is also quite simple. With 20,000 former test vets and their relatives and families, it's to encourage more of them to come forward, to link up with our campaigners, to tell their story to add to the strength of the case that makes this irresistible for government before the election and inevitable for a government after the election. And finally, just to end where you wanted me to start, where does Labour stand? So part of what you did was make clear to Keir Starmer how this is a deep injustice. And when that uh, medals committee came up with its fresh report and it's fresh, no, sorry, you don't count and you don't qualify back in December. This is what he said publicly, Keir Starmer, our leader. This beggar's belief. These servicemen were placed in huge danger and many have suffered throughout their lives. These are now elderly servicemen to whom our country owes a huge debt. A medal recognising their sacrifice is the least the government could do. This is not just a political, but a moral case. And I just say to you, as campaigners, when Labour makes such a pledge, that is a pledge we are determined to deliver. Thank you, John. On, on behalf of the veterans, thank you for coming. I know you're a very busy man while you're here in the conference. One question for you, because I don't let anyone get away with that one. Um, when you are Secretary of State for Defence, in about three months' time, and your officials come to you and say, well, very well, Secretary of State, but there's no evidence these men were irradiated. Our records don't show anything at all. What are you going to say to them? I'm going to remind them that the people who make decisions in government are those who are elected and that I want to ensure, as we did before in the 2019 election, we go into the next election with a pledge 
to right this injustice and to bring Britain finally, after more than 70 years, alongside those other atomic test nations that have done right by their veterans and their veterans' families. Great. Thank you very much. You can't and, ask for any more. And we will. And we will. Thank you. Uh, now, all your previous speakers have done something that most people in this country probably aren't aware that they have done, although you may have done it, which is they've spoken to a nuclear test veteran and their descendants, and they've heard some of their stories, and there's some here today. Now, uh, John Morris, who's sat here beside me, met Keir, he met John, um, he's met Alison and Andy as well, and he's told his story a thousand times. He's going to tell it to you again today. Um, you're going to find it upsetting. And that's just how it is, I'm afraid. There isn't very much uh, perky stuff in this. Now, John was at an operation called Operation Grapple. This was um, some of our biggest bomb tests when we turned atomic weapons into thermonuclear weapons. Uh, our biggest bomb, Operation Grapple Y, in April 1958, was 112 times the size in terms of nuclear yield of Hiroshima. And if you remember any pictures of Hiroshima, it leveled the place. And that was our biggest ever weapon. It was three megatons. And it is the biggest weapon to date, even, that Britain has ever fired. Shortly after that bomb, we stopped making nuclear weapons. We didn't need to anymore. America took us on side with them, and we started using their nuclear weapons, which is why we had done it. But John was present for Operation Grapple. Um, and it was after you returned home, John, wasn't it, that... Uh, you started to think that maybe something was amiss with Operation Grapple. About 1962, one morning when you woke up. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I have in front of me what I was going to talk about. I will now ad-lib because a lot of what people have said is so gratifying. For 70 years... I've been battling against authority and the cover-ups. For 70 years, I was left in the wilderness, basically trying to fight a battle I had no chance of winning. Then suddenly, my granddaughter, Laura, Laura Morris, took me by the hand and showed me the way of going forward. I am now 85. She contacted Rebecca. Rebecca brought this thing up into, into Parliament, the questions of which I'm extremely grateful. And then Susie, for a fantastic coverage, and the Daily Mirror for allowing it to happen, gave me fresh hope. There's my script. It's completely off the record now. All right. All right, but John, what happened was that I came back from Christmas Island, I saw four atomic bombs. I was there for one that was 20 miles away from me. And if I said to you in this room, would anybody sit 20 miles from the centre of the sun? The answer would be no. I was ordered. And guess what? I had all the protection that anybody could have. I had a shirt a pair of shorts and sunglasses. And that was it. We went on vehicles that were iron. In case it went wrong, we could jump on the vehicles and get back on ships. The vehicles, after the explosion, were so hot we couldn't get on for three hours. But I'm digressing. That particular bomb was the end of the world for me. It changed my whole perception of the human race, if we could develop such a devastating weapon, it, it baffles belief. When I was on Christmas Island, the very last bomb I was there for, I was covered in contaminated rain, contaminated sand, and the MOD said it never rained and the sand never came. I was there. I saw it. How I, old were you at the time, John? I was 18. And you were on national service? I was forced to do national service like a lot of us did at that time. And the reason they picked me has now come to light because I've spoken to so many veterans is because I was 18, fit, and not married. So it really, really didn't matter. The MOD picked the same 
people as me. We were, and the Prime Minister at the time has written, we need to test nuclear bombs on personnel, materials and equipment. Guess what? I was one of the guinea pigs. I was there. Now, John, when you're on Christmas Island, which is now known as Kiritibati in South Pacific, your job was in the laundry. Yes. So lots of clothes coming through from the sampling crews who would have flown in, in through the mushroom cloud in their planes, uh, from the scientists who were playing quite up close with uranium and the bombs and so on, and you were washing them, filtering them very up close to them yourself, as well as living on Christmas Island with the sand, drinking water that had been desalinated from the sea. Um, but it was after you came home, it was about, about sort of six years later. Yeah, I got married, and three years after we were married, we had a son, Stephen. One morning, we put him to bed as you would normally put your child at night. One morning, we got up, and he was dead in his cot. He was rushed to hospital like they did, and we went to hospital. He was pronounced dead while we were there, and the police arrested both myself and my wife and accused us of murder. Now, I'm 24, and you're accused of killing your son. That's... That day was unbelievable. It then turned out that two days later, they said, oh, you didn't kill him. He died of a cot death. We got his death certificate, and his death certificate said he bronchial pneumonia. And then it took me 60 years to get the coroner's report. The coroner's report said his lungs had not developed and they don't know why. Now, how the hell can somebody die four different ways? If anybody can answer that one, I'd like to know. But that got me thinking then, how many other veterans have suffered similar? So I had some friends who were on Christmas Island with me. They're, all of them are now dead. And they've all died of cancer, everyone. One at 42, one at 46, and the other at 58. They'd all, all either had deformed children, miscarriages, or they'd had children that had died. That started me thinking, came along Lab Rats, a wonderful, wonderful organisation. The gathering of information that Alan and his team have done is absolutely fantastic. And that is why I will fight. Um, there's 22,000 people possibly defend depending on me to get them some form of justice. That form of justice has got to be recognition. Without a shadow of a doubt, we deserve a medal. No doubt about it. I watched the Queen's funeral parade. There were people walking in that parade who had medals for England all over the damn place. I think the most of those people had only got a medal because they'd been grouse shooting on the moors. They'd never, ever seen them. Some of them were royal as well, John. Right. Now, that is so important that people help us. I will fight the Labour Party if they do not honour their promise. I will definitely be a thorn in their side. Make no mistake of it. As long as I live, you have trouble. If you do not put us in the Labour Party manifesto this time, I will be so bitterly disappointed. And I'm relying upon you. I know how the politics work in getting stuff on manifestos, and it's a nightmare. It is a, a, a minefield. But Keir Starmer, and I'll hold him, and I'll find him, trust me. <laughs> trust me. And he will. Yeah. Keir said he would do his level best to look after the veterans, of which there were 22. I believe there's about 1,500 of us left, there or thereabouts. We 
gave this country a nuclear power. And we, the veterans, have never, ever been thanked or rewarded. All I've ever asked for is recognition. And a medal would help. I'm grateful for you all listening to me. As I say, my speech has gone out the window, <laughs> truthfully. But trust me, I was there. I saw it, felt it, heard it, smelt it. The, the heat from that bomb almost felt like it was boiling my body. And I'm convinced to this day that affected my metabolism and my genes. And I think Stephen possibly caught some problem from me. And I always blame the MOD. I've tried to get my medical records, and those medical records are not available properly. Thank you for listening. It's Thank you all very much. You're very kind. Make sure the Labour Party keep the promises, please. It's worth pointing out as well, at the age of 26, John was diagnosed with a blood condition called pernicious anemia. It is a condition which, if you were to receive radiotherapy treatment for cancer, your doctor would warn you was a possible side effect of exposure to radiation. The Ministry of Defence, despite the fact this man has had that condition for more than 60 years, have told him he needs to prove he was irradiated and they've refused him a war pension, which is why one of our asks is reforms for the war pension system. It is disgraceful. Um, and it's also worth pointing out, I think, we've just said goodbye to a queen that you've just mentioned, and when she took the throne as a 26-year-old, that was the year we had our first bomb test and our first veterans. Um, now, next to me on the other side, just about holding it together, uh, is Alan. Now, his father, James, known as Jesse, is on the side there. How old was he when he was at Christmas Island? He had his 21st birthday on Christmas Island. So he went when he was 20, had his 21st birthday, and then came back. And what was, what was, what was, he was there for Operation Dominic, wasn't he? What was that? Operation Dominic, it's a joint US-UK test on Christmas Island, the same place as John, in 1962. The only difference is, um, as the Americans do, they had to do it bigger and better. They had, he witnessed 24 detonations in 78 days, the largest being just over seven megatons. And the, the total yield was 38 megatons. That is a thousand times bigger than our biggest bomb, which was a hundred times bigger than Hiroshima. Um, unfortunately, he died in 1994. There he is. Um, if you see, ever see a picture of anybody on Christmas Island, you can just replace the head because they all look like that. They're all in shorts, they're all sunburnt, and they're all young men, as John said. Um, unfortunately, he died, say, in 1994. Um, my brother, who was 31, also died in 1996. Um, my sister, uh, who's still with us, uh, was born blind in her left eye, and it's completely dead, and they have no idea what caused it to this day. Um, as a family, we've, we've suffered and because of it, my mother never really got over it. Excuse me. Uh, Alan always said to me, I'm lucky. I'm the one who got away with it, because my father died of a, of a heart condition on his third heart attack. Um, and my brother died in his 30s of the same heart condition, and my sisters had these problems. But I got away with it. Uh, and uh, a few months ago now, uh, I was contacted by someone who said Alan's had a heart attack and he died. He shouldn't be sitting here now. Like Stephen, he would be, just a picture on the screen. Yeah. Luckily, he was uh, playing walking football. He wasn't even extending... extending he was meant to say football, not walking football. The safest football, old man football in the world. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when he went over, and luckily he was there with some former Royal Marines and there was a defibrillator in the leisure centre. 
thanks to one of Mira's brilliant campaigns. Yeah. Uh, and they cracked a few ribs, but it brought him back to life, air ambulance, the rest. And now uh, he's fine. He has an internal defibrillator fitted, so okay. it will kickstart him if he suddenly goes over. But at uh, the age of 50, what is it now, something? Mm, 51. 51. <laughs> he is having to live the life of an older gentleman yeah. and be more aware of his health and concerns and have a carer with him sometimes, things like that. And his 15-year-old son, Joseph, is having to have genetic testing to see if he carries the same condition. <laughs> now, the Ministry of Defence asks people like this to prove that there is a Union Jack flag in their DNA. Yeah. Prove it was us. And the nature of radiation is that it doesn't leave a Union Jack flag or an American flag or anything else behind. It's a tiny little speck of nothing that you can't see that lodges in your body and stays there for decades, emitting a tiny ping, which sort of mutates the nearest DNA and causes that cell to do something a bit different. And that's all you can say about it. Um, and every, as John has said, every other nuclear power on Earth recognises that its nuclear weapons cause genetic problems. We know that with every living life form on the planet. But the Ministry of Defence and the British government for 70 years has been the only government that says, prove it to people who are the living proof, as you've seen and heard. And can I just say, there is another kick in the teeth for this, for any of those British veterans who weren't at Operation Dominic. For anybody that was a British participant of Operation Dominic that develops one of the 20 plus cancers that are on a list of presumptive diseases, the American government will give those participants $75,000 in compensation. The application process is fill in the form. Did you have one of these cancers? Were you present at Operation Dominic? Yes, here's your money. That's how easy it is. But because John was there in 57, 58, and not 61, 62, he gets nothing. So we have British veterans being paid out by the US government under their RECA program, and the UK government still denies any responsibility, compensation, medal, anything. So when I go and march at the Cenotaph, I wear nothing, because I haven't got anything. My father's got a GSM, a General Service Medal, but he's got nothing to say that he is a nuclear veteran. We're a nuclear family. There's nothing apart from recognition by the US government. So how do you think we as a family feel that the MOD still deny. It's disgraceful. Sorry. Um, well, there's another aspect to the test. If we can just pass the microphone along there to Steve. As well as the big major bomb tests, of which Britain had 45, there were 593, something called the minor trials. These took place in South Australia at a place called Maralinga, which roughly translates as Field of Thunder. It's a part of the outback which the British moved uh, indigenous people off uh, and used to set up on experiments that were creating the triggers for the bomb, doing tiny experiments on plutonium, uranium, seeing how it dispersed in the landscape and so on. And Steve, your dad was there, wasn't he? What was his job? Um, dad was a flight lieutenant with the RAF and he was in charge of the airfield that flew all supplies from the UK into Maralinga. Um, as part of that, he was an officer, so he had quite range, far-ranging access to all the areas. Um, and he spoke to me later in life. And the reason he spoke to me later in life was because for all of his life, he was terrified of the Official Secrets Act. He'd been made to sign it, so that's why a lot of the... A lot of the personnel, the 22,000 men, have probably never even spoken to their families. So there's probably people out here in this audience who may well have had family that were out there who could be affected. That's, that's one of the problems with this. But he did say that when he did start to talk, he talked about, it, it, I think as Alan said, you know, the sunshine and it was great, but then he started to talk about the darker side of it, which was there was... When we talk about, as Andy said, no PPE, um, the effect of the safety protection that separated the contaminated area from the non-contaminated area was a single-strand wire fence. Now, this was a desert with sand and wind. 
the contamination was in the sand, and it's alpha contamination, which, if ingested, is very, very damaging. And this sand blew, he told me, it was on your food, it was in your water, it was in your hair, it was in your vehicle, <coughs> you opened your door to your living quarters, it was in your bed. You couldn't escape it. Can I also just interrupt for a moment? Because the British government has also said they didn't monitor for alpha radiation at any of the tests. They monitored for gamma radiation and beta radiation, the stuff that immediately flows out the bomb. They never monitored for alpha, which is the main constituent of fallout, the most pernicious and the most damaging. Sorry, Steve. Carry on. So, Dad was probably living in an environment, like all the servicemen, they were literally wallowing in alpha radiation. So he comes back to UK, ten years later, along comes me. Now, I am visibly different. There are 200 forms of short stature. I fit none of them. Absolutely none of them. I've been told my condition is a genetic mutation, but I am unique in the world. And that is a common thread amongst a lot of the 155 descendants who are affected. A lot of their conditions are unique or extremely, extremely rare. Could you list the conditions you were born with, please, Steve? I have short stature, hydrocephalus, something called lumbar lordosis, um, and I had a leg that was bent 45 degrees the wrong way. That's now been corrected with surgery, which I've had a lifetime of. Another effect on me personally was that I always swore I would never have children. I am not passing my genetic damage on to my children. I just wasn't prepared to do that. But a few years ago, I met, I met who is now my wife, and we have a child, and he's perfect. But even throughout the pregnancy, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Have I played genetic Russian roulette with someone's life? Even at the scans, I'll be asking the radiographer, are his legs the right length? Does it look normal? Is everything okay? And that should be a time of joy. And it wasn't for me. It was a time of fear. And in many respects, every time he has a headache or, or he's crying, he's unwell, it upsets me because I think, for my first thought is, is it something to do with the atomic stuff? Is he ill? But he's not. He's fine. He's perfect for now. But a lot of the conditions that the descendants face, they come along in adolescence. So... In 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time, what if he gets a cancer? That's down to me. And it's horrible to think that that's probably mine and my dad's fault. Dad unintentionally passed it to me, but I didn't know the risks. And that's, that's the reason why he has no brothers and sisters and will never have brothers and sisters. I got away with it once so far. But what I really, really want is for... If the worst happens and he is ill in the future, I want him to be able to go to a doctor and say, my grandfather was a nuclear test veteran, and that should set off a process. There should be research done and things, support mechanisms in place, both financial and health. But at the moment, if you walk into a doctor and say, oh, my father was a nuclear test veteran, they go, oh, that's interesting. Mm. And that, that's the end of it. Yeah. The New Zealand government offers the descendants of its nuclear test veterans genetic counselling. I believe one, Which is very cheap and easy to do. I believe one veteran or descendant, when they told their, their GP that they had, um, that they, they may well have radiation contaminate, uh, exposure, um, their GP just said, oh, let's turn the lights off and see if you glow in the dark. It was treated as a joke. Mm. And for these families, it's not a joke. It really isn't. No. And what we're asking for, I think, is totally, totally justified. And it's a scandal that 70 years, 70 years have passed and it hasn't happened. It's a stain on our history, but a stain that has been airbrushed out. Mm. And that's why one of the other things that the veterans are asking for is educational packages as well, to go into schools so that you don't have to explain this to people. They already know. You know, our history in this country seems to be the Tudors, Queen Victoria, First and Second World War, the Beatles, Thatcher, that's it. And there's a huge chunk of stuff that happened in the middle there, which has got left out. Um, now, as Alison mentioned earlier on when she was here, for those who listened, the Mirror, there was a period 
uh, when Labour came into power in 97, uh, when the mirror soft-pedalled, in my opinion. I wasn't a reporter there at the time. Uh, <clears throat> but um, we certainly let it, let it slide for quite a while. So Labour's record in this, I'll quickly swim through it, is that in opposition under John Smith, Labour voted for uh, an amendment by an MP called Bob Clay, which was to give compensation to all test veterans. And in 1990, there were quite a few thousand of them left. But in opposition in 97, uh, I'm afraid, Labour turned their back on them. Uh, Tony Blair said that having got into power, he'd kind of read through it and he knew more about it and there was no proof they were irradiated. He'd bought that line that I asked you about, John, when the officials say, well, they don't have the proof because they are asking for a level of proof which science has not evolved to the point it could provide. It's not that they've looked and it's not there. The science can't possibly find what the Ministry of Defence is defining proof as, which is why that's where they define it. Now, um, Becky, the story, very quick, the, the stories we've heard today, we've heard them all so many times that I'm still sitting here filling up. It's kind of, um, it, it's impossible really not to, to feel incredibly emotional when you hear these stories, but practically, what can Labour do now, move on from the, the pledge they made in 2019, which was for a £50,000 ex-gratia payment to every veteran, that was a great start, but there's not very many Johns left anymore. So what, what needs to happen next? That's right. I think that the 2019 manifesto pledge was a great start, but it really isn't enough. And you've all heard the, the stories today that I'm sure have shocked you to your core. And I was one of those people 18 months ago who'd never heard of nuclear testing veterans. And with Laura, who's just standing up there, my constituent brought a granddad, John, in. I was absolutely horrified. And then that horror turned to anger because I thought, how on earth can such an injustice like this be swept under the carpet for so long in a country that's supposed to be the bedrock of democracy? Um, so, in terms of what the Labour Party does going forward, I know John Healy would agree with me that we can build on the 2019 Manifesto Pledge and consider how we can move towards delivering other key asks that are part of this campaign as well. The medal, an apology if the government doesn't deliver on this, war pension reform, financial support for descendants, educational programmes and absolutely critically research in the form of a full Hillsborough-style public inquiry. Now, in terms of what we can all do as Labour members, you'll be horrified by what you've heard today. Please go out into your constituency parties and put it on your agendas at your meetings so that we can start sharing these stories because there's not any person in the country who wouldn't be horrified by this. You don't even have to be a Labour member. We've been working with brilliant, well, I say brilliant, I can't call any Tory MP brilliant, but there's one particular one, Sir John Hayes, who's been really helpful to this campaign. And right across the political spectrum, people have been helping because they've been horrified about what they've heard. So please do um, get into your constituency parties and your branches and start talking about this. Alan and the Lab Rats team have got template letters and motions that you can put to your constituencies and branches. Get in touch with your local MP, particularly if they're a Labour one, and make sure that they're talking about this. And if they're not a Labour MP, start badgering the life out of them. Because I can say to you now, as a constituency MP, the more emails you get on a particular issue from your constituents, the more you start to think, oh, hang on, I better do something about this because there's a few people bothered about it. So start badgering those MPs. And if we fight this together, we will win because justice will be on our side. We've just got to keep going. And I just want to finish by saying thanks so much to Susie, Alan, John, Laura, John, and Steve and the whole campaign team on this because without you guys we wouldn't have seen the movement we've seen in the last 18 months. You've been a force of nature and we've all got to pile in behind you now and be that force of nature with you and we will get there. Thank you Becky. <laughs> now we've got we haven't got very long left in the room, but is there anybody who would like to ask some questions because Laura here's got a microphone is going to skip around the room and pass it around. Chop at the back. Susie, can I just give my yes. apologies? I've got to get off to speak at another event and say thank you again. Um, it's very unusual for politicians to say, lobby me, make my life more difficult. But Becky is totally right. The more that we can do in the party 
and in the constituencies to make more of our Labour MPs and our Labour elected councillors aware of this, the better. And we've got a job from the front bench now, between now and the election. I fear it may be longer than three months, Susie. <laughs> I uh, don't know. But bring it on whenever, whenever they're prepared to do it. But between <laughs> then, we have to play our part as the shadow defence team, your shadow defence team on the front bench to try and win that election. But we also have to prepare for government. And so we've got a first rate, really good new veterans shadow minister, Rachel Hopkins. So she and I, I hope with you, we'll be able to prepare some of the plans that we will have on day one after an election when we're able to get that change of government that we all need. That'll be brilliant. Okay. Thank you, John. And if you can get John on the conference floor for a motion, you don't just, just shout. I think he'll do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You can bet. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, our first question. Thank you very much, John. Hello, um, my name's Jack Deakin, I'm a councillor in Birmingham and um, I'm on Labour's National Policy Forum. Um, so this is something that um, I didn't know anything about and when I came here I didn't know what to expect today. So thank you very much for sharing your stories today and it is something I'll be taking forward on the National Policy Forum. Um, my question, as a councillor, you know, I'm not in Parliament, I'm in Birmingham City Council, what can I do as a councillor to help you and to help your campaign because I didn't expect to be as touched emotionally by the stories that you've shared today and I, I need to do something. Thank you, Jack. Um, I, I think the veterans would probably say that in your position on the council, you probably have some power over education and trying to get this into schools, making people aware of it. You will find that when you do that, that veterans and children and grandchildren of veterans will suddenly start popping up in your inbox go oh this do does relate to me i think affecting the, the history curriculum getting veterans locally and there's plenty around birmingham in to talk to children makes a huge difference and as far as the council is concerned any kind of official recognition with a capital r you know whether it's giving them the freedom of the city whether it's having them come and meet the mayor whether it's celebrating or marking in some way not celebrating but marking the anniversaries when they come up like i say october the third is the next big one that all makes a huge difference because it's been ignored that in my experience of 20 years of reporting the veterans that causes them the most pain so if someone starts noticing them and seeing them as Andy has said with with Hillsborough it's that moment when you say yes I see you that's what happens and that can do an awful lot thank you very much for offering your help okay. sorry the next person who's gonna, this lady sorry, sorry. hi uh, my name's councillor Carolyn Parks uh, I'm originally from Liverpool, as you can probably hear from my accent, <laughs> but I actually live in, in Dorset. I'm a Portland town councillor, and Portland is a, a Labour council. Um, what I want to say is I grew up as a, a child listening to stories about Christmas Island. My, my dad, John, was on Christmas Island at the same time as you. He was a, a royal engineer. And he'd talk about, very fondly, about the Gilbert and Ellis Islanders and, and the work that he used to do with them. And then he'd start talking about things that just sounded really strange. He'd talk about how they'd go out and they'd, they'd say, put this paper suit on and, and face that way. And then they'd let off a bomb and then they'd take all the paper suits back. And then the next time it'd be, put sunglasses on. And they'd send them out with sunglasses on. They'd let the bomb off and then they'd take the sunglasses and everything back. What they did to people on, on Christmas Island wasn't just negligence. It wasn't just they weren't aware of, of PPE and that the people should have been protected. They experimented on my father. They experimented on, on you. Now, we are the results. Us children are the results of those experiments, and I'm lucky like you. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and my blood boils when I talk to people. Like, our MP is Richard Drax. I'm sure you know Richard Drax. The, the long-legged aristocrat who doesn't want to throw red meat to socialists. <laughs> um, and he goes on and on in our constituency about the military covenant. Now, the military covenant. This government has run roughshod over the military covenant for existing veterans, never mind veterans back in the 1960s. It's a, a disgrace mm. the way successive governments have treated service personnel. The military covenant needs to be readdressed. 
in, in Parliament. Yeah. It but, needs to be but, far firmer, you're correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, what, what absolutely... And, and I could have kissed you, <laughs> Rebecca. Um, what what ab I absolutely loved in the 2019 general elections, I was South Dorset's Labour candidate. I knew I was on a hiding to nothing. I knew I was going to get stuffed, and I did get stuffed. But what I absolutely loved was that little section on the veterans, because I was able to pick up and throw the military covenants and the, the Tory government's lack of respect for that military covenant in Richard Drax's face in public and watch him squirm because he had no defence for it. The Tories have got absolutely no time whatsoever for our, our veterans. They, they want to see us, our, our veterans die off. And, and successive governments have wanted to Unfortunately, see Unfortunately, I think that's something that the Ministry of Defence also wants. And oh, I've, I've no once, doubt about once it. parties get into power, they take the Kool-Aid yeah. and everyone feels the same way. Thank you very much. We have to move yeah. down. I'm, Thank I'm you sorry. Much. I'm sorry. Okay. No, you're quite right. Talk the hind leg off a donkey. Yeah, this gentleman next, Laura. And then the one at the back, Laura. And then we're going to have to stop because we've already overrun over time. Yeah. Sorry, I'll try and make it quick. Um, I'm uh, Andy Newman. I'm a local councillor for North Tyneside Council. I'm the Armed Forces champion there and I'm also a veteran. Fantastic. Um, First off, one question what I was going to ask has more or less been answered. Uh, we launched a campaign with an organisation I'm a member of to try and overturn the shocking fees to Commonwealth veterans. And after over 30 Labour groups took these motions to their local authorities, the government finally got rid of these fees. And I'm just wondering whether or not there's an avenue to look at using the collective bargaining power of the local authorities to put as much pressure on, on the government over the nuclear test veterans, similar to what we did with Commonwealth veterans. The other one, which is the question I really wanted to ask, because following on from the lady said there about the Armed Forces Covenant, it's wrote in such a way that it's open to interpretation, so most Tory people can just ignore it. And the, there seems to be a pattern development. You've got, obviously, the nuclear test test veterans who have just been completely ignored for, for a shocking amount of time. You then get Gulf War Syndrome. Mm -hmm. We then get depleted uranium rounds, which I was unfortunately yeah. uh, spent a bit of time around when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I was injured and I didn't have... Well, I was medically discharged and told that I'd made a substantial recovery, so I'm not entitled to a pension, so work that one out. And then we have other veterans who have mass spinal damage, other injuries, yeah. again, being told to prove... One of the things I've always said about this, I was quite scared when John said that you'd taken on the British establishment. It's like, oh, bloody hell, <laughs> why couldn't someone say it to start with? Uh, one of the things I've always said is that if you can fix the nuclear test veteran issue, you fix everything well, that, that's That was my wrong. question. How do, we, how do we reform the MOD and the people who work within the MOD to ensure that no veteran who has, for example, been irradiated has to fight for 70 years to get justice but how do we reform it to make sure that veterans today don't have to spend the next 70 years fighting for justice for themselves yeah. well john john would say he just said to me the hillsborough law would be one good way of getting in a duty of candor i would say and it's probably gonna be an unpopular opinion because something that boris johnson did which move veterans affairs out of the mod this trust has just put them straight back in again, but it's the MOD that screws up the veterans every time. You've got to find someone, perhaps put it under the Department of Health or something, that you just move that issue out because they're not the people to be dealing with it. It's like saying um, that the, you know, the, the business which gave its workers an industrial disease should be in charge of curing the industrial disease. No, 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 you give it to the doctors kind of thing. Sorry, we've got one more question from this lady here. Oh, Gentleman no, here. me. Hi. Hello. Uh, my name is Podrick. I'm from the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Thank you, everyone, for your uh, contributions today, really powerful testimonies, and Susie and Becky for kind of bringing this campaign forward. Um, I think the testimonies really show just that, like, Britain's possession of nuclear weapons does already have victims, right? It's not just when a war happens and, and a bomb gets dropped. Um, and we also obviously have victims in the indigenous communities where these tests were carried out. So I was hoping to ask John Healy this one, but Becky, maybe you can <laughs> shine a light on this. When looking for justice for our veterans, what would Labour, would they consider this um, compensation for those communities where the test took place, what your position on that would be? And maybe will this take a rethink on Britain's own possession of, of nuclear weapons, considering the height of the tensions at the minute, and will we kind of, will this lead to a kind of another push towards global disarmament? That's, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no, just a small one there. <laughs> Mm. 
Yeah. Um, can I just say that we were at a reunion last week where the Kiribati Tungari Association of the UK uh, came and did a, a tribal dance for us. It's part of their history. They come every year and they're an association in the UK. And again, you are totally right, they have been completely ignored and that their, their lands are contaminated. Uh, the same as with the Maralinga, the tribes in Maralinga. There are places in Maralinga you can't go. If you Google the Montebello Islands in Australia where the first test was, you will see a sign that says don't stay here longer than an hour and don't pick up anything and take it away with you. But it was perfectly safe. But it's fine. Yeah. Um, very quickly, because we've got to give the ring because we're well over time. Thank you, everyone, for taking part. And like I said at the start, this isn't just a talking shop. We get to sit here and tell stories to each other, like so many fringe events are that I've sat through over the years. This has to be something where people leave and go and actually make some sensible change. So please, if you're involved with the policy forum, if you're involved in your local agencies and organisations, um, we have a draft motion which we've composed. It's available on the Lab Rats website. On each of your chairs, there is a card which will take you to that page. If you look at the QR code on the back, uh, there are resources on there. There are draft letters to MPs and so on and so forth. Please get in touch with us. Please. I am easy to find on Twitter at Fleet Street Fox. Atomic Lab Rats is on there. Um, Steve Purse is on social media. We're all on Facebook and Twitter. Please get involved and ask us what, how you can help, and we will give you all the help that we can. This is one of those stories that the Mirror would be happy to see in other newspapers. Okay, so thank you very much for all your time. Um, now get back to work and go and fix it.